Hey, everybody. Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Daniel Lebetsky, founder of Kind Snacks, which is the fastest growing snack brand and one of my personal favorites. It's not every day that you can find a snack that's healthy and so tasty. But as you're going to hear in this conversation, Daniel is really good at finding a way to advance to seemingly contradictory goals. And it's been a game changer for both his business and his life. He calls it the philosophy of and. And it's an incredible way to maximize value with every decision you make. We talk about how it works and so much more in this conversation, including what it's like to really be a shark on Shark Tank, which he happens to be. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Daniel Lebeski. Daniel, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. It's a pleasure to be with you, David. You know, Daniel, uh, I, I want to start by saying hello and how are you? You know, I understand that... You can say hello and how are you in, in 40 different languages. You know, how'd that come about? I love languages. When I was a kid, I was taught that my dad could speak fluently nine languages, but in full, not just a couple of words. And I, so I started learning a couple of languages and then I discovered how special it is to be able to surprise a person in their language. And I learned a few quirky proverbs that I can share with a taxi driver in New York or with a person when I meet them somewhere and they're not expecting it. It's just like you totally fill up somebody's heart and discover a completely new world when you learn a little bit about their culture and their language. Yeah, I know, you know, be running a global business myself and you know, people love it when you take an interest in their country, their culture and, and their language. And, you know, I, I want to get to your kind business, but first, I, I understand that your your mission in life is to be a, a bridge builder. You know, what's driving that? Well, it started when I was a kid. My, I was a Jewish kid in Mexico, which is a country that's predominantly Catholic, and my mom and dad taught us about the importance to build bridges. My father was a Holocaust survivor, and they taught me about my duty as a human being to lead my life every day with a view towards preventing what happened to my dad from happening again to any other human being. And so I, I, I observed how my mom and my dad used to give popcorn to the person in the theater next to them. In COVID times, that sounds really, really weird. But back then, <laughs> it was very charming that my parents always offered you know, to share with, with strangers and to break bread with others and to treat the teller in the bank with the same kindness as they treated the president in the bank and to treat everybody with respect and kindness. That is, that's terrific. And, you know, that, that had to be harrowing just to hear your father talk about his experiences. And, and when you think about your leadership today, Daniel, how, how do you think your dad's experience is really impacting how you're going about leading your business? David, it's very hard to talk about my dad and not get uh, emotional in a positive sense. I lost him 18 years ago and not a day goes by that I don't think about him and 
how he would have wanted me to lead my life. And I wish he had met my wife and my four children and seen a little bit of what I have been able to accomplish for society. And, you know, he was a very special type of leader because he, he always thought about the others before he thought about himself. I don't have that strength. You know, I, most of us lead our lives thinking about ourselves, right? Like you just wake up in the morning and you're inside your brain. So you're like thinking up from your vantage point. And, you know, moms have this rare ability to think about their children before they think about themselves. I love my children boundlessly, but when I'm hungry, I start feeding myself. When, when my wife is hungry, she thinks, oh, my kids must be hungry. And my dad was just at a different level. He always thought about our family and about others before he thought about himself. And that's how he handled business and that's how he handled everything. He truly was a servant leader in the best sense of the word before that term was popularized. And I think I, I don't even get close to him. But I'd like to think that I, through osmosis, observed him doing business and I learned a little bit about about uh, long-term thinking and about relationship building rather than being transactional, being relationship-oriented. So I do think I draw some things from my father. Yeah, well, I mean, anybody that does any research on you knows that you do a lot for others as well. So you picked up a lot from your father. You know, you you immigrated uh, to the United States from Mexico, I think in 1984. You know, I traveled a lot when I was a kid. I, I had to check into schools. It's a pretty anxious thing to do, you know, when you, when you move into a new situation. What did you learn about making friends and, and how to establish yourself in new situations from going from Mexico to, 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 to San Antonio? It definitely was uh, an adjustment. You know, in Mexico, not only was it Mexico compared to the United States, but it was also a homogenous Jewish community in a private school in Mexico compared to a public school that I attended at what was then called Robert E. Lee High School in San Antonio, Texas. And it was, you know, when I was a kid and I would watch movies in Hollywood when I was in Mexico, all of us were like, oh my God, this is silly. You know, things like The Breakfast Club or all these things, like that doesn't exist in real life. That's And you get to San Antonio and you find out that there are the jocks and the cheerleaders and the debate kids and the drama kids and the punk rockers and the gangs and the and it really was a lot of clicks and uh it was fascinating for me and at an early age i didn't understand these differences so i would one day sit down for lunch with the hispanic kids and the other day with the black kids and the other day with the white kids and one day i was with the drama kids the other one with the debate kids and the other one with the jock kids and one day this uh girl named amber alonso who was a kind of like a punk rocker, she approached me and I had kind of had a crush on her. And she's like, Daniel, you know, you need to define yourself. You cannot be friends with all of these people. You're destroying the social order. You have to choose <laughs> one. And then my cousin Eddie made us dress. I didn't know better, so I didn't know how to get dressed. So one day we're wearing Michael Jackson leather jackets and the other with parachute pants and the other one jockey. So she's like, you know, you have to choose one type of outfits, not all these <laughs> different types. But I chose not to do that. And I chose to be friends with everybody. And I think people didn't know what to do with me. Like, okay, this is this, this immigrant kid. He doesn't know better. Let him be friends with all of us. <laughs> Maybe That's probably why you've been building such a great mainstream brand, you know, you know how to appeal to the masses, you know. Now, as I understand it, 
you've got a real passion to get Israelis and Arabs to work together. And that ultimately led to you developing Kind. Uh, tell us that story. So right after law school, I started a company called PeaceWorks to use business as a force for bringing neighbors together. And, and its flagship venture was involving Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, um, Egyptians, Turks, Jordanians. And the concept was to help people break bread together and recognize each other's humanity and then start working with one another, gain economic interest in preserving and maintaining those economic relationships and as they benefited from trading with one another, they had an incentive to preserve and cement those relationships. So it ended up that, that PeaceWorks became a food company because that was, uh, and I, with my accent, it's required F-O-O-D. Sometimes people think I'm thinking about feet products, <laughs> but food. And I, I launched a line of Mediterranean spreads through cooperative ventures. And, you know, 10 years after making many, many mistakes and two steps forward, two steps back, I kind of had figured out the natural food industry and I had a lot of friendships in that space. And I personally felt very frustrated with my own snacking options when I was skipping lunch or dinner in working on my out of my desk or traveling or crisscrossing, going door by door, still selling our products. I wanted to have a healthy snack that I could feel good about eating. And I didn't find anything that felt right to me. And that's how I thought about Kind and conceived Kind as a platform where the number one ingredient in everything we make leads with nutrient-dense ingredients, like wholesome things like almonds, whole almonds or whole fruit or whole grains. And uh, where, you know, can taste good also, but it's helpful for you. You know, now here you are, you're, you're the fastest growing snack brand. What can others learn from you and your team about how you made it happen? I mean, if you could really kind of boil it down to a couple things. Well, David, mine is not the most traditional path because again, I had those 10 years of a lot of mistakes and a lot of lessons. I self-learned. I didn't go to business school. And, you know, I, I learned the trade from retailers and buyers who taught me what to do. And I, you know, one thing that I could definitely think applies to every person is don't be afraid of making mistakes as long as you're like really drawing lessons from them. Because a lot of kind success came from those first 10 years at PeaceWorks where I learned about focus and about not overextending myself and about strategy and about uh, migration strategy and how you go to different channels and about... Uh, letting your product be get the spotlight and your social mission, as much as I'm passionate about it, should not be your driver. And so in terms of marketing to consumers, and so there's a ton of things that I drew from the mistakes that I made at PeaceWorks. And I think that's probably the most important lesson. You actually trademarked the line, not only for profit. And what do you mean by that? So back in the early 90s, what today we call social entrepreneurs, that term didn't exist. And social capitalism, that term didn't exist. And I was trying to explain who we were and what we were. And people ask us, are you a business or are you not a profit? And what we say, well, we're a business with a social mission also in the PeaceWorks years. So we conceived the term not only for profit. So in the legal tax code, you can either be a for-profit or not for-profit. 
But reality is that you can do both. You can try to advance societal goals or make your small contribution to making this a better world and do it in a way that's sustainable and uh, profitable and scalable, which is using market forces. And that's, you know, where you're, when you're able to do that, it's a lot of fun to be able to create businesses that have a, a deeper impact in society. It's not always something you can pull off. Sometimes you need a nonprofit model to address uh, nonprofit objectives. Or sometimes the business is just a business that's providing jobs and well-being and that alone more than justifies the role of business in society. I'm a big, proud capitalist. But when you can be holistic about it and think about the role of capitalism in society and how we can make this a better world, I think that's when you create the maximum value. As you've grown your business, you've applied this uh, philosophy of the and. Uh, explain what you mean by that. So the and philosophy is something that came to me naturally, but I only realized it much later. And then we brought it, we synthesized it into, into the set of principles that we lived by at Kind. And it's kind of like when I wrote my college thesis, I chose economics and international relations. And by melding two disciplines together, I was able to write about the influence of economics in resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict. Similarly, when we're conceiving kind, we want it to be something that's healthy, but also tasty, or something that's wholesome, but also convenient to travel on the go, or something that's economically impactful and socially impactful and economically sustainable. And the theory of Ant, David, is that a lot of times in life, our brains take shortcuts for efficiency. And it's good that they have these heuristics where they draw conclusions, but it can also be dangerous because sometimes those conclusions are actually wrong and they are efficient in the short term, but they might not create the maximum value. So you as a person that's trying to start an enterprise or live a more fulfilled life need to question things. And we need to ask, what are the underlying assumptions making me think that I have to choose between this or that? You know, the mindset of or is make choices between this and that. And sometimes you do need to take choices between short term and long term and between this and that. But very often you're able to think with and and elevate to higher level of productivity by saying, wait, could I do this and that? What is the underlying assumption here? And can I test and challenge that underlying assumption and, and prove that actually there's a way to advance to seemingly opposing goals? It makes total sense. And, and it, it's it's interesting, you know, I, I think in, about what you've been able to accomplish. You've You've been, you basically have, have grown from being, you know, one person with, with a pretty big idea, okay, I'd say a very big idea, to, to running a large organization. What was the hardest thing that you had to let go? Well, it's still a work in progress, like, right, David? It's all of us have uh, egos, and there's a healthy ego that makes you want to work harder and drive faster uh, and, and gives you confidence. But we need to manage those egos. And, and part of growing as a leader is retrenching yourself each time and giving the space for your team to lead. And it's not the easiest job. It, it really requires a lot of attention and attentiveness to the task. And I'm, I'm definitely not perfect at it. But, you know, like you said, David, it was a one-person operation run out of the basement of my building. And uh, it was a windowless basement. You had to go through the trash compactor 
and the laundry room to get to my windowless basement. That's where I started PeaceWorks. And then, you know, I used to go door by door. And then I had one team member that helped me. And then we were four. And, you know, going from one to two is very hard because you have to manage. Going from two to six or eight is hard because you only have to have a team. And then at each stage, you need to learn completely different styles of leadership. When you're 15, you need to have key people that are then coaching some of your team. And at some point, you know, when you have 500, 1,000 people, you need to be more of a mentor and you need to be more of a coach and to empower people and to inspire them and do a lot more of the inspiration and they, than, than actually rolling up your sleeves. And for me, that's the hardest part because I'm still the guy that was running, you know, that little booth at the Natural Products Expo when I was for 10 years doing it either on my own or with three or four team members. So I still open up those boxes. I still carry those boxes. And it's just my style and my personality. But I, I increasingly want to go from doing all of the things myself to also coaching. And, and, and it's, it's an area of opportunity and growth for me still. You know, I remember when I was coming up from, you know, very humble background as well and moving up the the ladder, you know, as I got to be president and CEO, you know, everybody said, oh, you shouldn't do that. You don't, don't you pick up those boxes. Oh, you know, we'll do that. You know, you know, how have you avoided, you know, falling, you know, not falling into that trap of being the, you know, the, 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 the CEO who has the emotional distance, stays above the fray? Well, I remember... I brought in investors for the first time in late 2008, early 2009. And I remember that at a trade show, they saw me picking up the box. And they were very good investors, very good mentors. Most of the advice they gave me was excellent. But in this case, um, they said, you know, you know you're, you're the founder and the president. You don't need to be opening up these boxes. And I listened to them that trade show. I, and I felt so off. It felt so wrong. And, um, and I told them, guys, I'm, I'm going back to who I am. That didn't feel right. And, in few, you know, we have a team that does the bulk of it. To be fair, you know, I'm not the guy that builds up the booths as I did the first, uh, the first uh, 10 or 12 years or 14 years of my life. But, but I do want to carry those boxes and pitch in. And I think it's not just that I'm doing something, but it's also showing to your team that all of us are equal and all of us are part of the journey. And it's just part of my personality, I think. Uh, that one doesn't come hard to me to just, uh, if anything, I need to sometimes let go. It's, it's that, That's more of what I need to do. You know, I, I only recently, David, heard maybe in the last week or two, a, a quote from a famous Jewish philosopher called Maimonides. And it said that you should lean in to the opposite of your strengths in order to achieve temperance and balance. So if your instinct is to let other people do it, try to practice by doing it yourself. If your instinct is that you do everything yourself, try to practice by empowering others and delegating. But all of us need to try to find balance in all we do. You know, uh, as you well know, Daniel, people follow the leader. And, you know, leaders cast a shadow for the rest of their organization. Uh, what kind of shadow do you do you try to cast? You know, I wouldn't call it a shadow, but I completely agree with you. It's been fascinating for me to observe, David, the overwhelming impact that a CEO or founder's personality, values, and culture 
have on the organization's culture. I mean, I have a lot of CEOs of public, uh, Fortune 500 companies, publicly traded companies that I admire and that I've gotten to know over the years. And I get to know them and I understand their personalities. And then you look at their companies and their cultures and they're the same. It's one and the same. The culture and values of that leader end up becoming the culture and values of that organization. And we really have to watch it. And, you know, at kind, we tend to be more a little quirky because I'm a little quirky. We tend to have uh, kind and hungry values where you try to, the how is as important as the what, you know, how you do things, treating people with respect, with the team spirit. It's what you aspire to. Everybody's imperfect. Everybody makes mistakes, but you try to, to do the, the right values of respect and team spirit. And then we are very hungry. We work really, really hard. I'm a bit of a workaholic. And I think we do have a very hardworking uh, ethic and culture at the company. And that balance between kind and hungry is very important because if you're just kind, sometimes you lose that edge. And if you're just hungry, then you lose that spirit and you have to find the balance Probably the thing that we're best known for at Kind is our authenticity and our transparency. And it's very much how I've led within the organization where we just say what needs to be said and speak to each other with candor and just are direct and honest. And I think that's uh, part of our culture. You know, Daniel, I, I follow you on Twitter and, and and I enjoyed this one tweet of yours, which is was that being the most creative company can level the playing field with even bigger competitors. You know, how do you personally drive creativity in your organization? You know, it's not that easy to think outside the box. That's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And the first thing with, with the quote you mentioned is that if you're playing by the same rules and with the same, you know, set of tools that your larger competitors, then you're at a disadvantage because your larger competitors have far more resources. So for startups and for smaller and younger companies or for any company that wants to maintain the edge, creativity is the thing that creates a level playing field. So the way we try to instill creativity first and foremost is by creating an ownership culture where we make sure that our team understands that they're owners, not just in fact by giving financial incentives a long-term incentives, but also by understanding that they're empowered and with that power comes a responsibility for them to run the company as if it's their baby. And then we do have a set of tools uh, that we try to introduce. I, I wrote about them on how to um, have a creative mindset and how to brainstorm and how to try to uh, encourage that creativity. You've really moved and innovated. You started out with your kind bars and, and you've moved into different categories. Uh, you're much more than a, a bar company. You know, what goes into your thinking before you enter, enter new categories? So the most important thing, which I only learned from making the mistake of not doing that at PeaceWorks, is keeping the kind promise, knowing what you stand for, what you are and what you're not. So if you go to our website on kindsnaz.com and you look for the kind promise on Google, you will see a set of principles that we try to very, very uh, strictly abide by. And we try to not, even if it's tempting, not go and launch products that will not fit very, very clearly 
within our kind promise. And there's a set of commitments about what the product needs to look like, stand for, be for. And even if there's a fad or a trend that makes, oh my God, this thing is doing well. If it doesn't fit with our kind promise, we won't do it. So I think that's the, the foremost. And then do you have permission from, does your brand have permission to go into a different category? And Ambassador Thomas Pickering once taught me this. Uh, he was a, one of the foremost diplomats, but he also was an executive at Boeing. And he taught me that business sometimes is like a board of chess. And if you think of that board of chess with those 64 uh, squares, you want to go to your adjacencies before you jump, you know, all the way to the other side of the board. So if you're a fruit and nut bar company, can you then create fruit and nut bar snacks or not uh, something or bars that are with grains? But you only move one step out of the way at a time. If you jump from being a whole nut and fruit bar company to a company that has nothing to do with the fruits, with the nuts, or with the, or with the bars, it's a little bit harder to consume. So you, you take it one step at a time and, the, and really make sure that you build the permission structure for you to go into. You know, for us, when I launched Kind, it was never about being a bar company. I never thought of Kind as a bar company. That's why we didn't call it Kind Bar. It was just Kind. Uh, or kind snacks, or kind healthy snacks, but we never used kind bar as our name because we always thought of as a platform of healthy snacking with ingredients you can see and pronounce with nutrient-dense ingredients. That's that was our language, and so when we launched the uh, kind healthy grain granola clusters and with the kind uh, healthy grain clusters and the kind healthy grain bars, it was always feeding and moving in that direction. Now we have. Uh, we're in the freezer, but we started in the freezer with bars, kind frozen, that were leading with almonds still, but now in a frozen state. And so we're slowly moving into the freezer through something that we have permission structure, which is an almond bar. It's not just a, a, a frozen treat. You know, uh, I have a lot of respect for lawyers. Many lawyers are my best friends. And, you know, I, you're a lawyer, and but gee, many, I mean, how did you become such a good marketing guy? I mean, I, just through the going through the the all the learnings. I mean, you you talk like you've got the you, you're the marketing guru. Twenty six years of mistakes, David. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, uh, you know. You also say, Daniel, that you, that you, you really want to create a culture where every team member knows that their voice is as important as yours. I, I know you're an idealistic person, but that seems almost impossible. I mean, you know, how, how in the world can you create a culture where where that can actually happen? You're right. It's very hard. You have to strive for it. But, it, you know, I have meetings where sometimes I come up with an idea and people don't challenge it. And I start getting terrified because I am I have mentors and friends that I've seen them how People don't challenge them in their larger organizations. And it's very dangerous to create a situation. You know, my chief of staff, Ellie Lanning, once told me that, you know, I had asked for people to do X and they were going out doing X. And she said, do you realize that to do X, it's going to cost us a million dollars and it's going to involve these and six months? I'm like, of course, don't, don't do it. And she went and told them and, and, and they said, but Daniel said to do it. And they 
it doesn't make sense, but what, what we need to do as leaders is make sure that we create a permission culture. When we say do this, is do this with an asterisk. And that asterisk you should carry across to everything I say is so long as it makes sense. And <laughs> if it doesn't make sense in your opinion, you're closer to it, don't do it. Raise your hand and say, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do it differently. And you will be rewarded. And it's also about creating a permission structure for people to take risks and to challenge you. And, you know, I'm a very forceful debater. And so I can't help myself. I just need to accept that that's who my personality is. So sometimes somebody comes up with an opinion and I don't agree with them and I debate it forcefully. I have to then make sure that people understand. Oh, and by the way, John, thank you for everything you said. I really, really admire and respect that you said that. And, 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 and. Or, you know, sometimes be convinced. But it's very important that if they convince you, that's awesome. And then you bring that and remind people and remind people about the times when their point made it and they were right and you were wrong. And then other than that, uh, if you are not convinced, then it's very important to remind those team members that that still was an awesome exercise and that that, that person deserves a raise or deserves the recognition for challenging you. You say you don't want to just create a company. You want to create a movement. You know, how, how, how do you go about igniting your people around that kind of idea? It's a, you know, a huge thought. Well, first of all, I don't think it fits for every company. For KIND, it made sense because of what KIND stands for. But you shouldn't, not every company should try to have this language if it doesn't feel authentic and it's not authentic because it's going to fall on deaf ears and the consumers. If it feels unauthentic, it's actually going to backfire. But for KIND, the reason we want to become a movement is that we created KIND not just to do the KIND thing for your body and for your taste buds, but also do the KIND thing for your world. What that means is that it is part of our mission from the very beginning to try to increase empathy and kindness and to make kindness a state of mind. And a lot of what we invest in from our philanthropy and from our marketing even is in trying to help people be more kind towards one another and make kindness you know, front of mind, a state of mind, you know, become the trait that we want all of our children to aspire to rather than be smarter or be be kinder. If we achieve that, then it'll be success for us. And so we can't achieve that just by selling products. We do have to create a community and a movement of people that are part of that journey with us. You know, Dan, I, I'm loving hearing how you think about leadership and, and how you're taking your company forward. And I want to get into your head so our listeners can learn how, how you've really worked through a couple of very specific examples. Um, you know, you recently sold the majority of your, your company to, to Mars. Tell us why you did that. What was going on in your mind? Well, it was many, many years of thinking. And I always thought about, I always put kind first, you know. And I taught my team to put kind first. There were people that were the head of this department and then the company grew and they needed to themselves hire someone that they would report to. It's an incredibly hard thing to do and to expect your team to do that, to create the culture where team members know when they need to welcome leadership and they're going to stay involved, but they're going to report to somebody. But because we started from nothing, we created that in our culture because it happened so many times where our head of sales then, you know, ended up reporting to somebody else that became the head of sales. And then that head of sales ended up reporting to somebody else because we just kept growing and growing. 
and developing more skills. It's a needing more, more of that mentorship. And we saw that as an opportunity for us to grow, but also to always put Kind first. And, you know, at some point, we successfully launched Kind in other countries. We did it in the United Kingdom. We did it in Dubai. We did it in Mexico. But it was taking so long. It was very hard to maximize our potential in the United States and do so globally. And so we felt we needed a partner that would help us do that. And we met a handful of companies and got to know them. And all of them I enjoyed meeting. It was a really uh, enjoyable process, actually. I think all of these big companies sometimes get a bad rap. Some of them are bad companies, but the overwhelming majority of companies are led by people that are kind people, that are good people, that have the best skill sets, the most professionalism, and they need to have those ethics for them to, you know, grow and achieve that. And so I got to develop very nice friendships, but we chose Mars because they're privately held and thus are able to be very long-term oriented and they're family owned. And so it was very familiar to me that when you're family owned and you're privately held, you're able to think generationally rather than quarter by quarter. And that's, the, that's what drove me to choose Mars as my partner. And the decision to let them become the controlling shareholders is the most recent. And that's not one that I can speak with enormous authority to yet because it only happened like a month ago. I retain an ongoing financial stake because I want to continue helping Kind achieve what it's going to achieve. But it is new for me to work with my partners now with them being uh, having the, the veto power. And I think it's working really well because I respect them a ton and they respect me. And we both have something to contribute and we have so much to learn from our team. And, you know, Grant, the CEO of Mars, brought in a formidable leader named Juan Martin to be our global leader for Kind to help us grow globally. And we got to know him over three plus years. And that made a lot of difference that we trust each other a lot. And he understands the DNA of Kind and he really thinks about Kind the same way. And so I think that's uh, so far looking that it's going to be good. Yeah, you know, the, it seems like the, the global opportunity really had a lot to do with driving your your thinking Correct. there. And, and, you know, it's it's To be concise, so that should have been the answer. It, it, it's so hard. It's so hard to build an international infrastructure. So I, I'm sure your brand will really take off now internationally with this uh, with this. And I should add also, we're entering new categories like Kind Frozen, thanks to our partnership with them. We would have not been able to do that ourselves, even though it was in our in our scope of opportunities. They had the best technology to create the Kind Frozen bars. You know, you you've also Daniel, you're you're a really great guest on Shark Tank. You know, and. I wanted you to just tell us why you decided to make a million-dollar investment in Yellowleaf, a brand of hammocks made in Thailand. Uh, my my wife wanted to know the same thing when I came home. Uh, <laughs> I love the guys, uh, John, Rachel. I love their mission. But I really do believe that the product, the hammocks, and the hammock throne that they invented is a, more of a breakthrough product than people realize. I think those hammock thrones five, 10 years from now are going to be all over. They're going to become an important piece of furniture because, you know, as a Mexican guy, I learned to relax in hammocks. I associate them with my childhood and my dad used to love in the hammocks. And 
I love being in the hammocks and our whole family would get into hammocks. And so I enjoy them a lot. But there really is something about that gravitational uh, swing that is just really pleasant. And we tend to associate them only with being out on vacation outdoors. But now John Rachel hacked it so that you can have that hammock feel as a piece of furniture inside your house. And I think that is awesome. And I'm, you know, I can't wait to get mine. They're taking too long with the supply chain, but I'm waiting to, to, to get my hammock thrown inside. Well, I hope your investment makes your wife happy ultimately. I think that'd be great, you know. <laughs> and, and what have you learned by, you know, learned about leadership by being a, 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 on Shark Tank and, and swimming with the so-called sharks there? Well, they're very different. Swimming with the sharks and, and, and mentoring the entrepreneurs, both very different fields of learning. Swimming the sharks is these guys really are sharks. Nothing is staged. You do not know anything before. Like a lot of my friends don't believe me. Like you show up and you see the entrepreneur, you don't know what's going on beforehand. And these sharks are very witty. They're very smart. They're very fast. And so you need to develop the ability to stay quick and to think quick. Sometimes you make mistakes and people are like, why did you offer this amount? You just need to think on your feet really fast. And so you know, it's not the easiest. And when when we finish recording, like it takes me several days of decompression to just process all of the back and forth debates that happen. Um, <laughs> I don't know, David, did you, were you a Seinfeld fan? Did you watch Seinfeld? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that episode where George Costanza, who happens to be played by Jason Alexander, who's now one of my closest friends and I love him, but he's like, he got taunted and they named him something mean. And then three days later, he's driving. He's like, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> and he thinks about what he should have said three days ago. That happens to me when I, when I record Shark Tank. And days later, I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I say this? <laughs> uh, but then as far as, as far as coaching entrepreneurs, it is, it's not easy. It's, it's hard because you want to, you know, being a, a founder myself, I really want to honor honor, honor my fellow founders and not, you know, not ever disrespect their vision or their decisions. But then sometimes it really is, you know, a little bit hard when you see that they're doing something wrong and you tell them that they need to do it differently and they don't listen. And, you know, most of them really do listen, but I tend to just, whoever's listening, I give them more time and invest more in them. And whoever's not listened, then at some point I I uh, reduce my engagement. So, you know, sometimes see, three days later, you say, I wish I would have thought of that. But you have taken the time, Daniel, to really codify your experience and, and your learnings. And you've launched a, a really great new book that I think every leader should read, which is Do the Kind Thing. What made you write it? And what do you hope to accomplish with it? So I wrote it because I was, a few reasons. One of one. Uh, my father said, to become a man, you need to have children, write a book. And I don't know what the third one was, but like I wanted to fulfill my dad's uh, dream of, of writing a book, which I did. But I think the most important reasons were I wanted to be able to share a lot of what I've learned with fellow entrepreneurs. And I, I would, a lot of people ask me for advice. And seriously, that book, Do the Kind Thing, is designed to help fellow entrepreneurs, and I really strongly encourage people to read it that are either starting businesses or, or any other social enterprise or nonprofit. 
um, I think it's it's very helpful for people that are either starting or along their way in building their businesses and can also be useful to just learn about the philosophy and mentality of what we do. And also, it's very important for my team. You know, now we have, we, it used to be that all of us knew each other perfectly. Now we have, when you count international and designated categories and uh, the companies we've acquired, and so we're probably over a thousand people, I'm guessing. And, you know, I want to be able to share our philosophy and our tenets and how we think and our secrets of our success with our team as well as with other entrepreneurs. Well, you're an internationalist. You're growing a, a global business. And when you think about what I'll just call kind leadership, you know, does the kind mindset, does, does it work everywhere? You know, a lot of times countries will say, oh, this won't work here. Well, the very important thing to talk about when you're talking about the kind mindset is that kindness is not weakness. And a lot of people equate kindness with weakness because they think of being nice. But being nice and being kind are completely different. You know, you can be nice and be passive, but kindness requires action. You can be nice and just be polite and not say anything, not get in trouble, but kindness requires the courage to say what needs to be said. You cannot be kind and just stay back. You can be nice and not cause problems, but to be kind, you need to stand up and solve the problems. You can be nice and not bully someone, but to be kind, you need to stand up to the bullying. So yes, I believe that this style of leadership applies everywhere, in diplomacy, in business, in raising our children, in everything. But it's it's the true kind. It's not the what some people associate with being nice and a pushover. There's nothing about being a pushover in kind. Like, there's no weakness in being kind. Like You require enormous amounts of strength to reach out to that stranger who's in the street and you feel that they're suffering and you need to reach out with a stretch hand. You realize how much strength that takes? Somebody's struggling and you, you could just leave them alone. That's being nice. But to help them out and to be kind, it requires a lot of strength of a protagonist, of an actor, of a leader. Absolutely. And, and, you know, having traveled in a lot of countries, I, I think kind and that mindset travels everywhere. You know, Daniel, this has been so much fun. And, and, and I want to have more with uh, just a, a, a quick lightning round of Q&A. Are you ready for this? Sure. All right. What are the three words that best describe you? Um, authentic, transparent, and hardworking. Do you have any hidden talents? I'm a magician. What's your favorite magic trick? Uh, disappearing a coin with my hands. What's something about you that few people would know? I can say, hello, how are you, what's your name? Uh, basic sentences in dozens of languages. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? Wow. I, I, those type of questions I did to think my father just so that I could feel him inside me one more time and so I could sense his presence and so I could learn from him and so I could... Wow, I wish I could have met your father. He sounds like an yeah, amazing and so person. so that I could have, like, yeah. asked so many questions about how I could or should do things differently or... Yeah. What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, I have many. I'm, I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very impatient. <laughs> Lack of authenticity, fakiness, uh, yeah. Injustice. I think injustice may be my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. When people are unjust to one another or where they lie, and I, 
lack of scruples. And so, what's your what's your favorite kind kind product? I really don't have one. I I love them all like my children, and depends <laughs> on the moment. So, the dark chocolate nut and sea salt is the number one bestseller, and it's like a really magic combination between savory and sweet. But you know, I just fill up my drawer here. I have a <laughs> raspberry cashew chia, which is just delicious, and I have a protein bar crunchy peanut butter, and so I like to keep it. Uh, I like to mix it up. <laughs> Great, you know. I knew you wouldn't give us your favorite. I knew you wouldn't do it. You know, nobody does. You know, you, they're all your babies. You know, and you know, just a few more questions, and we'll wrap this up, Daniel. So do I get to ask you questions or no? You, you can ask me anything you want. What was your favorite uh, food to eat? Not not performance wise. But of your chains, what was your favorite food? Well, that's why I knew you You would say I couldn't pick one. I, I had products at each brand that I loved. Like, for example, I loved Pan Pizza at Pizza Hut. I, I loved Original Recipe at KFC. And I, I loved the crunchy taco, just the basic crunchy taco at Taco Bell. And those were the three things that, uh, you know, I, I just absolutely love them, still love them to this day. It, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, tell us about Empatico and, and why you founded it. Empatico is a platform to help children connect with other children all across the world so they can expand their horizons. We go into classrooms and we allow teachers to connect their classroom to children. Like, let's say, children in Northwest Arkansas can meet kids in New York or kids in Delaware can meet kids in Nigeria or kids in Memphis, Tennessee that are all black kids who have never met a white kid before can develop a relationship with kids in southern New Jersey who had never met a black kid before. And it's just magical how you expand kids' horizons and help teach them how to navigate their differences, which is such an essential skill set for this world. And it helps them be better leaders, develop empathy and emotional intelligence, uh, discover the world as it is, and 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 just you know expand those horizons. I love that. You know, you know, Dan, you've received so much recognition. What's meant the most to you? Without any doubt, it's uh, my kids telling me that I'm the best dad. And sometimes they don't when I don't let them use an iPad. But it's being a good father and them feeling that and, and connecting with them. I, there's nothing that comes close to that feeling. How have you incorporated recognition into your, into your own leadership? You know, we have we have an award once a year called the Kindos of the Year Award. And then we have other uh, Kind and Hungry Valleys Awards where we share with a team that lived those values uh, and that exemplified those values throughout the year. And we celebrate them. And this Kindos of the Year Award travels every year and everybody gets the little Kindos Award. But then there's a big one that gets plaques and, and it just passes from one to the other year by year. Um, I think we could do a lot more in terms of our recognition. You know, you talked about the and earlier on. What would be the and that you're trying to bring to your personal life? Well, um, I can answer it two ways, David. First, I need to be a better manager of my time. And that's not so easy to do with and. That's more like discipline. But if, if there could be an and, and I could, you know, let's say, advance my business and civic and social objectives while teaching my children, which I do a little bit, that's an and, right? Like helping yeah. my kids become citizens of the world and, and, and more responsible 
while uh, doing something good. I think that's a, that's an end. But the biggest end for me right now, David, is our society is so polarized. It's so divided. We're living through something I personally never thought that I would live through in, in America and the United States. I came from Mexico as a son of a Holocaust survivor, passionate about the Middle East. So I have a lot of experience with division and polarization and trying to overcome that in other countries. And I've realized, interestingly, you know, sometimes I think there's providence and maybe it was meant to be that way that I was going to develop all of that knowledge and skill sets. But whatever it is, I'm going to be dedicating uh, the plurality of my time in the coming years to try to take a lot of those lessons on how to build bridges and apply them in full force using both economic and other civic tools to help uh, build bridges in, in our own society and lift our boats and help people. You know, Daniel, that was going to be my last question. What's your unfinished business that you just gave that gave me the answers? And, you know, I, I, I do a lot of podcasts and, and I love doing them because I love learning from leaders. And I have to tell you, this is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, you, you are an incredible person with an incredible story trying to do great things in the world. And, and I want to congratulate you on everything that you're doing, the kindness that you're trying to drive around the world and, and, uh, the humility that you have as a leader. I think your father would be extremely proud of you. I know he would be. David, thank you. That means a lot to me. And I look forward to meeting you in person one of these days. I would love and, that. Um, to getting to know you. Well, I don't know about you, but I just love how Daniel leads. You can tell kind isn't just the name of the company for him. It's a value that comes from who he is and how he was raised. And man, that authenticity is just so powerful. Here we have this guy who went out of his way to make friends with the jocks and the nerds in his high school. And then he developed a snack that's both tasty and good for you. And he founded Kind, where the goal is to make profit and make the world a better place. I just love this philosophy of and, where we look for ways to advance two seemingly opposing goals. Instead of assuming we have to choose one or the other, we can check the underlying assumptions and see if there's a way to do both. When we do, we maximize value and build bridges. Boy, that's the kind of creative thinking that every leader needs to embrace. And it's an opportunity for me to offer you a bit of coaching. This week, as a part of your weekly personal development plan, grab a sticky note and write the word and on it nice and big. Put it somewhere you can see it every day, like I put mine on my refrigerator door. And as you make decisions this week, Keep that philosophy of and in mind. Check underlying assumptions when you face choices. Think creatively. See what kind of amazing things that are possible when you find a way to do both. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders embrace the philosophy of and. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the very best leader you can be.